0: people. Welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that if we all work together, there is time to create the future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Amanda Scott, your host in this journey into possibility, and this week's guest is a remarkable woman who is one of the shining lights amongst those who came to teach us at Schumacher College in the days before the pandemic. Sophie Banks has been an engineer, a footballer and a therapist. She was intimately involved in the transition movement from its inception, helping to find ways to balance inner and outer work, for people to keep heart-focused in a world where a lot of outward-focused action can so easily lead to burnout. As I said, I met Sophie in 2016, as she was beginning to move away from that role and moving towards inner transition as a new movement, and also working deeply with grief-tending workshops, inspired by her time with Sabonfu and Patrice Maladoma-Some from Burkina Faso. They were some of the most transformative experiences of my life. And whatever other healing you have in your life, I can completely attest to the fact that a grief tending workshop, probably several, is really transformative. Sophie is still leading those, and I will put a link in the show notes. But she's also now founder and lead facilitator of the Healthy Human Culture Movement, where she brings together the deep learning and experience of the past decades in a system of online learning journeys and other workshops which offers a vision for a world in which societies, communities, workplaces, families and individuals can thrive. And doesn't that sound exactly what Accidental Gods is here to promote? The healthy human culture offers a journey of healing and understanding and exploration of self and other, and it feels absolutely core to where we're going where we could go, where we need to go, as people, as a culture, as an entire world. It is an honour and a delight and always a deeply moving experience to spend time with Sophie. So people of the podcast, please do welcome Sophie Banks of Healthy Human Culture. Sophie Banks, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. It is such a pleasure to be talking to you again. I will say this now, I will probably have said it in the intro that you were one of my greatest inspirations when I did the Masters at Schumacher. And everything you've done since seems to be growing in the directions that we really need. So you are developing the healthy human culture, body of work, concept, courses. And we're going to explore that today. So just to start off, how are you and where are you? And then tell us a little bit about how this came to be your focus. Because when I knew you last, you were doing a lot of really deep work on, on death and, our, and grief. And this feels like a slightly new pathway, perhaps, or at least a, a deepening in other directions. So over to you.
1: It's really lovely to be here. Yeah, I'm in Devon, so not far from Schumacher, surrounded by the fruiting garden that I live in and an abundance of plums and figs at the moment, which is just a very deep joy. Yeah. Wow.
0: Yay, I have Devon envy. Yes. Have you not, just as a separate completely farming concept, most of our fruit seems to just really not be setting very well this year because the weather's been so weird. Is it It's okay in Devon?
1: Last year we had the most astonishing bumper apple crop, so I feel like all my apple trees are just taking a rest.
0: Okay, right. Yes, that's probably true. Anyway, back to Healthy Human Culture. Tell us a little bit about what it is and how you came to be doing this and doing it now.
1: In some ways I feel like Healthy Human Culture is the accumulation of all of the questions that I've held and the inquiries and the different bits of learning that I've accumulated over my life. So my family of asking, you know, why is this family of good people and good intentions so complicated and creating actually quite a lot of fear and suffering in its children when that absolutely wasn't the intention of my parents, good people. Right. And Yes.
0: That, and isn't that so often the case? That that parents I watch so many of my friends who are parents and they are really good people doing their very best and 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 we're all watching the kids being screwed up in real time and it's it's cultural and it's inherited and it's not knowing what else to do I would say yeah sorry I didn't mean to interrupt uh,
1: and I think there was a second sort of layer for me in my twenties that was. Um, Coming out into the world of being a lesbian, playing football, being around very working class women, women of colour, Irish uh, women, and waking up to systems of oppression. You know, this was in the 1980s, so Irish politics much more hot and present in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like there was a whole sort of waking up to white middle class privilege and how different lives were for people of colour, for uh, people with working class backgrounds. Uh, And I was an engineer at that point, you know, so learning hard science, technology, you know, probably thinking as was the sort of belief system of my family and my culture, you know, that science had a lot of the answers And as I was heading for my second breakdown, I would say around the age of 30 and the failure of my relationship that I thought would last forever, I started to turn towards um, inner work. I slightly accidentally became a therapist, you know, but I was on my own sort of therapy journey and started to meet ideas around unconscious. It wasn't framed as trauma in those days, but this sense that there are parts of us that are out of awareness, that are running quite a lot of our behaviour, and it takes work and support to bring those parts into awareness. So, so when we're doing inner work, we start to have more choice. We start to bring those parts about us that are out of awareness into conscious presence. Um, And as we do that, we have more choice about which part of us we go with or which part of us is present and in charge, in charge of what's happening.
0: Okay. All right. I have a question in that, definitely, but go on. Yes.
1: Um, And then the last piece in terms of bringing healthy human culture into existence was my time in the transition movement, where I felt like my role was to hold a focus on inner and depth and systemic dynamics, um, but also to bring the kind of wisdom from many different uh, inner, tra- inner traditions spiritual, psychological, earth based, ceremonial, you know, peacemaking, the many, many threads of inner work and weave that into a movement that had a tendency often to be out of focus, that, you know, came through quite a strong window of permaculture, um, which had its own dynamic about inner and outer. And in that, I found that I was constantly on the edge of burnout. Uh, I felt like the people focused on outer and action and doing tended to polarize from people that were focused on being and depth and inner and process and relationship. And I got very curious about that polarization. Um, and that, that was happening for me at the center of the movement within Transition Network. Um, and I, you know, I believe that the dynamics that come and the challenges that come at the center of the movement have meaning for the movement in terms of its purpose. So I, I felt like I was in a deep inquiry about that and about burnout. What did it mean that maybe a third of the people in transition were burning out in a movement that was I you know, one way of saying it would be intending to prevent the planet from burning out. What had we not right. understood about burnout, that we needed to understand, to deepen and really serve our mission? So it was in that context that the ideas of healthy human culture really started to take shape. yeah, and to link them, I would say one of the things that I saw when i started to draw maps because really i'm an engineer underneath all of this inner work is that the 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 response to pain and the relationship to pain and grief is really central to whether we create healthy culture or whether we create a culture where that pain is avoided passed on put into other bodies turned towards the earth You know, what do we do with our pain is really central to whether we create healthy culture. So for me, like you're saying, grief tending, shared spaces of tending our grief in all its forms and this map of healthy human culture feel very interwoven for me. Beautiful. So I'm holding both at the moment. You know, they're both part of my work.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. There are so many questions in that. I have a question on how an engineer accidentally becomes a therapist, but that's that's too process-led. Let's, let's not go there. I would love to talk more about football as well, given we're recording this, people, at the end of August, so there's football's been in the news quite a lot. However, let's not. So you have a map, which we will get a copy of and put that up on the website, guys. You can find it at accidentalgods.life podcast. Can you talk us through how the map works because a map is not the territory but it seems to me having seen a little bit of your map that it it does map a territory very well and it's it's an inner territory of ourselves and it's a territory of the culture and the systems that we live in so this is applicable on on many scales let's have a look at it and see if we can begin to unpick how it applies to each of us individually and how it applies to the world that we live in
1: in, in my mind I'm imagining the map in front of me um, and I start on the left hand side of the map uh, and the, the left hand side of the map is exploring the question what is health what is health for human beings uh, and as you say for human beings as individuals but especially for human beings in relationship in groups in society um, and and I guess the intention of the map was to put together these the individual, insights that I'd learned from therapy, from, you know, my life experience, but to, to especially to put that together with systems of power and oppression um, and also why are we destroying the planet, you know, this the question of the day or a question of the day. Uh, and and one of the things, one of the pieces that I started putting together in the transition movement was this polarizing of being and doing with archetypes that I'd met in my psychosynthesis training where a definition of a healthy human is someone that has a developed capacity for love and a developed capacity for will and I spoke to somebody somebody that I met through my transition work uh, who is a Chinese medicine practitioner and asked him about health in the Chinese system and he said the first sort of framing of health in Chinese medicine is the balance of yin and yang So we had these two archetypes again, and I was really looking at trauma. There was a lot more about the neuroscience of trauma. Peter Levine's work was coming out when I was in this inquiry. Um, And I started to wonder whether these archetypes of health had something to do with the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems and the sense that healthy human beings have their sympathetic and parasympathetic working in right relationships. In a state of relaxation, in a place of trust in our relationships, of attachment, because attachment is so central to what it is to be a human being. Um, you know. And then I started seeing these pairs of relationships in other systems. I was uh, working with Subhambhu Some In her culture, it's the balance of fire and water. It's the important thing, three times as much water as fire really wary about fire.
0: That's from Burkina Faso, yes?
1: So Sabonfu and Maladoma, who came from the Dagora people of Burkina Faso, um, brought their teachings to the West, seeing that, you know, we were destroying ourselves and we also soon would be destroying their culture. Obviously, much of African culture's already been destroyed. Um, and I also found it... Um, I heard Woman Stands Shining, Pat McCabe, you know, so she was talking about it as gender, masculine and feminine, needing to be in right relationship. I tend to not gender these archetypes. I think it's really helpful to keep gender out of it.
0: Yeah, really. Yeah. Okay, but we've got yin and yang and fire and water, which we definitely can work with. And sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic nervous system. Let's have a little bit more of a look into those because they can become very stylized quite quickly. You can end up with shorthands of fight and flight and then and, and get lost in polyvagal syndrome and all of those things. And what I am understanding from your map is much more of how in a, a healthy human or a healthy culture, there is flow and balance between all the different aspects of each of those, that they're complex things in and of themselves and that if we render them static in our in our own concepts, then we are going to end up bouncing back and forth between the yin and the yang or the fire and the water instead of flowing between them. So can we dive a little bit more deeply into those?
1: Um, I'm curious that the that the sympathetic nervous system is so associated with fight and flight. And when I've listened to people who really work in detail with nervous system states, it's actually just a mobilizing system. So just to stand up, I need a bit more sympathetic activation to give a bit more blood pressure, a bit more oxygen. Just to go for a walk, I need a bit more sympathetic activation, you know, to go to sleep, to wake up, to be more active, to dance, to hug somebody. Play football. To play football. (laughs) Um, So... I feel like part of healthy human culture is reclaiming the sympathetic nervous system as a joyful, stress-free, mobilizing, active. You know, this is part of the joy of life is to be in our sympathetic, moving through the world alone, together, in relationship. So that so, and I think it's a good question, and I've asked groups of people how often do they feel they're in a kind of Active state without stress, with a with a um, underlying sense of capacity, of trust, uh, of resource. You know, and actually, for a lot of people, especially working in mainstream organisations, that's a really rare state. Actually, so nice. much of our activity has stress, pressure, push, drive associated with it. So, so the first. Part of healthy human culture is, like you say, it's the movement and flow between action and rest, between outward and inward, between new experiences that stretch us, that bring us learning, that develop our bodies, that develop our relational capacities, and the digestion, the integration, the recovery. the soothing that allows our bodies to fully integrate an experience and then be ready for the next one. And what I see in healthy cultures, healthy organizations, when I'm in health in my own life, is that then there are practices, rhythms, habits, rituals, you know, which could be as simple as how do we end our day together? You know, we've gone out, we've done stuff in the day, and how how do we digest our day? Do we sit and talk about it? Do we, you know, write in a journal? Do we go for a walk? Do we have a bath? Like, what do we do? To, or is our evening still super pressured and then I fall asleep exhausted and get up the next day and, you know, have to go, go, go again? And if we're doing that, what's that doing to our bodies, to our immune system, to our nervous system? So this is the first bit of healthy human culture. It's like a ground state of flow between action and rest. And with, you know, movements into stretch, whether that's relational stress, you know, uh, learning how to be with each other, um, the pressure of getting on with each other. I think getting on with other humans, the hardest technology that we need to learn, Um, but it could be physical, you know. Project management, something new, a new skill, something that I'm learning with my body, with my mind, with my emotions, and then recovery, digestion, integration. That's that's the basic pattern of healthy culture. And then shit happens, you know. And then there is um, disaster, accidents, disruption conflict, you know, these things happen uh, and our autonomous nervous system takes us to flight, then fight, then freeze. Now we're into polyvagal theory. And then the key thing about healthy culture is is there a return path? Especially once we get to freeze. But once we've got to flight or fight and there's a significant activation, how do we come back? And if there's a rupture in our relationships, how do we repair those? How do we come back to this ground state where we're fundamentally feeling a sense of trust and holding in myself, in my relationships with humans, and in the wider holding of life?
0: So can we delve more deeply into return paths then? Because that seems to me to be really core to the concept of healthy human culture and also Insofar as I understand it, it feels like one of the absolute missing keys. Uh, let's assume that healthy human culture is our birthright, that we evolved for hundreds of thousands of years with really healthy human cultures, we assume. Certainly looking at other Indigenous peoples, insofar as they survive around the world, they have some really healthy cultures. And then those cultures, relating with other people, seems not to be so traumatizing and fraught with difficulty as it is in ours. And using your map as a model of their landscape, it seems to me that the rituals and the return paths and the ways of heading trauma off at the pass, that's probably not the right paradigm, but they have ways of not getting as stuck as we do. And that it's the return paths and the rituals that might be making the difference. If I've misunderstood that, please feel free to correct me. But if not, can we delve into what is a return path and how do we recognise one?
1: I'm I'm deeply curious about what what they might be or have been in cultures that have endured for a long time in relatively peaceful, relatively joyful, relatively um, respectful ways. So. Some of the examples I've come across in Sabon and Maladoma's village um, in Burkina Faso, they would have a grief ceremony every week. And that grief ceremony would involve drumming and dancing and singing. It would involve somebody going to the shrine with support, um, expressing whatever was there to be expressed. So it's physical, it's emotional, um, it's rhythmic you know, a lot of the things that we in the West have learned much more recently about how to move stress through the body with support are built into the structure of that that ritual or ceremony.
0: And have you experienced this on a weekly basis? Because I have done grief ceremony with you and it was an extraordinarily moving event that had ripple effects through my life for Probably forever, but certainly I was aware of it as a as a physical thing for weeks. The idea of doing that weekly is actually quite scary. It, is that? But I'm guessing if you do it weekly, it's probably not such a huge cataclysmic event each time because because you kind of your bucket is never quite as full. I've just moved into dog training metaphors, but it, is it? Is it? As big every week, or is it something that the mountain to climb is not quite so huge?
1: I don't know. And, you know. I don't know, is it every week? I don't know the details of exactly how often, but it was seen as part of the kind of emotional hygiene of the village. And it would be expected that you would attend, you know, maybe not every week, but at least from time to time. And if you weren't going, this is what I understood from Sabon, you know, somebody would come and say, hey, why aren't you showing up? um, right. you know, why aren't you doing your work to keep the the village space clear? And I don't want to romanticize or idealise, you know, I, I think that culture uh-huh. had its shadow and its, you know, places that were not in health. But the sense that I had meeting Sabonfu especially was of somebody who felt absolutely at home in her body, a sense of self worth and self confidence that I rarely have found in myself or met in other women, especially who'd grown up in modern Western culture. Um, So another example was uh, Rob Hopkins interviewed one of the grandmothers at Standing Rock, and I'm sorry that I don't have her name, and asked, you know, what, what do you do when the young people, the young men, but others, when the young women come back from the front line? You know, how do you help them to come back and deal with the shock and the violence of being tear gassed or water cannoned by the police? And she said, we put them in the sweat lodge. You know, we take them to the sweat lodge like, okay, that's another return path for processing um, shock and violence through the body. You know, I've heard of the sand people, the bushmen in the Kalahari doing ecstatic trance dances. You know, so for me, this sense that there are many ways, there are many possibilities, and they involve ceremony, they involve physicality, they involve support, the opportunity for vocal expression. You know, so Mm. I imagine there are many of them. And I feel like in the, in the West and modern culture, we're starting to see the importance of somatic of including the body, of shaking out, of release. You know, I I feel like we've gone from very heady therapy, psychoanalysis, you know, to much more including the feelings with humanistic therapies, gestalt, um, psychosynthesis, what I do. And now I feel, you know, good therapy trainings are including the somatic level. And for a lot of people, you know, who, who evolved their culture as they evolved, you know, into life, into being, that was woven in, that was just a part of what they did.
0: Right. And and we have things like Five Rhythms Dancing and everything that's evolved from that. And And my limited experience of that is that things move on levels that are so far removed from my conscious awareness. The energy in the room becomes a living thing and something with which one relates as much as with the other people. And I imagine, and without wanting to romanticize, as you said, that if you have done that with with your tribe from before you were born, that in itself becomes a whole technology is the wrong word, but a whole system of of healing and connecting and knowing and liberation that that does seem to be one of the key features of of indigenous peoples i've just finished reading civilized to death by uh i can't remember christopher ryan and and he has a lot of instances of recordings of old older cultures that are no longer with us or or people who are still in indigenous cultures and what seems to be absolutely key to the way that they live is a sense of personal freedom and a sense of inner joy exactly what you said one one of the researchers who stayed with a tribe in the amazon whose name i will never remember but he said why do you think i'm here he'd been with them for five or six years and they said because we're happy and we're really good people and and yes that was exactly it he he wrote that they they laugh all the time they laugh when a tree falls on their hut or they laugh when the sun rises or they laugh when a child is born or they laugh when somebody dies and it's not a it's not a defensive laugh as we would have it's this is life and life is amazing and and we must I'm thinking, this is taking us a little bit off, but it has seemed to me for a long time that we have a million years probably of human evolution. Something else I learned from the book is that our, our relatively blunt teeth and short guts mean we have been cooking food for a million years. And it's only really in the last 10,000 that things have begun to fall apart and at least certain of our cultures became hierarchical and, and dominant. and distracted and disconnected and ruptured and traumatized, and that's a tiny part of our overall evolution. And therefore, if we can find ways to heal the trauma, our natural state is to be connected with ourselves and each other. And it can't be impossible, I hope. Anyway, sorry, rant. Let's have... So, return paths require ritual, Do they always require movement and dance and song, or are you aware of of other return paths that are happening in the flow of our daily lives?
1: I think a return path could be something as simple as stopping and taking a breath.
0: You know, that could
1: be a micro return path you know, sitting and meditating and letting or, or just sitting and watching the sunset and letting my nervous system recover? Is that a return path? You know, it depends what, what we mean by it. But I like the idea that we can build, you know, we need to build in these sort of micro rhythms of returning, of soothing, of recovering, of digesting at every level of scale, you know, interpersonal, personal societal as well as across time you know i think the truth and reconciliation process in south africa was an attempt at a return path of uh, right. repairing the trauma of apartheid um, imperfect brave but also did some extraordinary things um what the return paths look like as 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 cultural systems it might look like restorative justice rather than criminal justice um it might look like teaching children conflict resolution skills you know restorative s- skills emotional repair skills simply how to apologize and repair relationships as part of the curriculum which you know many people have been trying to get that kind of learning into schools skills based into schools And I just want to, because we're starting to use the word trauma. So I I want us to start to speak about the next sort of area of the map, like the middle of the map, if you like, is what goes wrong, what takes us away from what I, what I believe is a kind of expectation, a birthright. When something happens that is painful, that is threatening, that takes me into a sense of survival threat, I think we expect that there will be a return path. I think we expect that our people, our community, our parents, our elders will know how to bring us back, will feel that we are of value and worth bringing back, will notice that we're not okay. And that there will be some process to, to bring us back. So I, I have started to look at trauma as not just an overwhelming event, because I think overwhelming events with a sweat lodge, with a grief ceremony, with a restorative justice process actually teach us something completely different. They teach us that together we can endure shocks and ruptures and repair them. They absolutely build resilience into our communities and into our relationships. Um, and so, the thing that creates trauma is not the shock of violent conflict; it's the failure of a return path. So, trauma is a two-stage process, um, and you know, possibly a third stage, which is why did it happen in the first place, and how are we attending to that? Um, but You know, one of my early sort of real areas of exploration as a therapist was around sexual abuse. And I met people who'd been working with sexual abuse a lot who said it's not the abuse so much as what happens when the abuse, um, the person abused tries to speak about it. If they are listened to, if both the person abused and the abuser get help, if the system is brought back into health, actually there can be a repair that is not permanently damaging it still is impactful but there's not a permanent rupture to a sense of safety in the world what really creates the lasting impact is when that person isn't listened to when the perpetrator is still abusing when the system of denial closes in but that you know that's one example but across any example that second stage of the failure to attend to and repair, I think creates a second layer of shock and leads to a a very profound sense of rupture and a belief that I can't cope with what happens. We can't cope with what happens. When shit happens, life does not support me. And that goes forwards, um, you know, for individuals, but in a culture that has lost its return paths that starts to be a pervading underlying belief we cannot cope with our pain you know when there is violence we cannot recover to rebuild the web of trust with each other and with the people on the other side you know we life now becomes a threatening unsafe place to exist and then we start to create individual and collective strategies for managing life where we don't actually face into the pain head on because we don't believe we have the capacity to do that. And I think that's the underlying sort of landscape of our present culture. Um, And that's why grief tending, why turning towards pain, why making places where we look at Um, Pain collectively is a really essential component of what's needed.
0: Gosh, there is so much in there. So let me just gather what I think I've heard. So essentially gaslighting, which is the no, there was no problem, nothing bad happened, is the toxic overlay to whatever the, the difficult thing was. And it's so toxic because we are born, I think I heard you say, with an with an innate expectation, belief, understanding that the world is a safe place and that we will be held and that if something bad happens, there will be ways to heal it. And then something bad happens and, and that expectation is completely not met. And it's the combination of bad stuff and the not meeting that creates the really deep trauma. And Clearly, one can see that on so many individual levels. I'm just thinking about the whole Spanish footballing paradigm event and and wondering then how that could have been managed differently. Let's not go there. It's, It's too deep and too difficult. And by the time this goes out, it'll have been yesterday's news. But it seems to me... How do we bring this to a societal level? Because what you've just described, we can see it going on, on in every newspaper headline every single day, in all of the toxic Twitter threads. In, in our politics is, is designed to perpetuate this trauma. Gaslighting is what politicians do. You know, We're going to dump sewage in the rivers and then tell you that it's completely not a problem. And in fact, we're going to change the rules so that totally toxifying every river in the country is fine and and I'm I, on on other threads that I'm on watching people finally breaking people who've been working against an individual uh, water company throwing sewage in the river, and they've been working against this for years, and now things are breaking. They are breaking because the system is seems so obviously stacked against us, and that on every level in every field, this is happening. and it feels to me as if the we're back to good people. Why do good people create toxic systems? And I, you're very good and you believe they're good and I look at them and I think they're inherently evil. And that's probably because I'm not a trained therapist and I just think these people are just bad. But, but let's go with your view of they're good people and they're creating toxic systems. How do we change the system so that the healing that we need, so that we have the return paths, so that this isn't the way life is i'd
1: like to just spend a, a, a little bit more time in a way in, in the middle of the map and then and then come to that question you know of, yep. um so i think i think this question of of kind of why or what's happening it's useful to ask that question and I think internal family systems is really interesting. I, I came across a guy called Franz Ruppert who was a family constellator, very, very interested in trauma. Very, He was a medical doctor, but also a family constellator. Um, and he came up with a kind of, of model around trauma that said there are when trauma happens, there are three parts that go forward. And one part is the traumatized part which carries on as if the trauma, as if this moment of overwhelm and terror and helplessness um, and threat is happening in the present moment. So there's a part of us that, that is carrying that, which is split off, you know, pushed out of awareness, this extraordinary capacity that humans have to repress that in order to survive in the moment. So that part, it continues to exist, If you like, waiting for the repair, waiting for healing. The second part that goes forward is the survival part, a very healthy, useful, evolved response to situations of overwhelm that strategizes or manages or, you know, um, engages with the world as it finds it in order to survive in a, in a, moment which may become a very long moment where there is not the resource to deal with the overwhelming situation and the third part that he points to which is really important to keep remembering is and there is still health so you know most people I would say in every society probably have a mix of some experiences of repair and you know the attachment is holds and there is holding and life is good and there is joy and confidence and value and and so on safety and experiences when that didn't happen and we know the other side um, and so to so, so to see this individually you know in in internal family systems I think there's the exile isn't it it's like the traumatized part and then you have is it a manager or a firefighter firefighter. that are very much the kind of survival parts in france rupert's models but this sense that um yeah there are parts of us that are dealing with life in in a world in which there is not always the opportunity to heal those parts will have residue of of the emergency nervous system states so there will be a lot of fight there will be a lot of flight there will be a lot of freeze and fawn and the other um, ways that we our bodies evolved to try to cope with situations of stress, and I think it's helpful to see those as cultural patterns. You know, you talked about gaslighting and denial. That's one response. Another is persecution. Is a more fight response. Is to go, we'll attack the victims. We'll blame the women. You know, we'll um, shoot the black people. So, you know, that's another way of surviving in a world that's fundamentally unsafe another is to appease you know another is I I don't have enough power so I'll just do whatever is asked of me I'll give up my sense of self-worth I won't set boundaries or so we can see those patterns and if you take any issue whether it is you know ecological climate change whether it is racism and post-colonialism, white supremacy or gender violence, like you can see, I think, all of those um, behaviours as, as systemic patterns of behaviour. And I think it's helpful to acknowledge that they're distributed all the way through the system. So if I'm really honest, I can find the part of me that uses my power sometimes to dominate and get my way. You know, I can find the part of me that avoids and denies. I can find the part of me that appeases, the part of me that just numbs out and shuts down. Um, so I think it's helpful to acknowledge that all of those parts are in all of us and in every bit of the system at all levels of scale. And it, and instead of asking, is this healthy or not? It's more helpful to ask, what's healthy? where's the health in this system? How do I experience it? And, and where is their not health? You know, how is that operating in me and my relationships, in my organization, in my family, whatever. And we may, you know, I may identify with a place of more strength or with a place of more vulnerability, but the split is always in me. You know, so if I identify more, you know, in my family, I feel like I took the role of, the one who was more persecuted and carried more of the pain, but I've still got the part of me that actually wants to kill people. You know, that's, and those right. two parts are connected, yeah. you know. Um, so, so then we start to see sort of the right-hand side of the map, which is the part where trauma has occurred, there is not return paths, and now we have these split-off behaviours Operating in complex ways throughout the system. Um, so, on the top, what I put on the top side is the kind of more sympathetic responses. So, fight and flight. So, systems of domination, but also avoidance, denial. I think addictions come into that. So, I can't cope with things, I'm just going to uh, escape. And those patterns are often associated with privilege. You know whether our systems of privilege and marginalisation, um, the of the option, the choice that some people have to just walk away from dynamics around race or gender or class or disability to ignore it as if it's not a problem. Um, and then on the bottom right are more of the behaviours that are around appeasing, a sense of powerlessness. And I want to make this really important distinction between these behaviors are structures and patterns of behavior that i can find in myself and a lived reality that is created when this right hand side acts out through systematic violence through poverty creating poverty through taking resources and land through destruction of culture where there's genuine powerlessness you know where mm. there is a lived experience of scarcity uh, and really important to keep distinguishing between yeah, what are structures, psychological structures or emotional structures, and what is a lived experience of violence as perpetrator, as the one receiving it, the target. Right. Uh, one more piece which I think is, is interesting is that you know what i have experienced and this brings me back to the kind of split between doing and being in transition is that if we don't have a health of doing if we don't have a health of action we're on the right-hand side of the map where action is in denial of vulnerability where where action is often fear-driven so looking at activism, which I think is itself a really interesting word, activism, not being-ism, you know, we've already gone a bit to top right, driven by a sense of urgency or scarcity or fear, says we don't have time to do the inner work. We don't have time to focus on relationships. You know, we don't have time to feel the feelings. we just got to do, rebuild, do the actions, stop the damage, whatever it is. And, and now there becomes this kind of split between outer and inner, between action and feeling, between mind and body. And I think part of how I've come to understand that is that, that those that have the option to identify with strength or those parts that identify with strength on the right hand side don't want to stop and feel because underneath is this layer of trauma. And if we sit on the cushion, you know, if we stop and really start to go into uh, what's happening in my body, what's the constriction of my breath, what feelings are down here, we're going to meet that place and I'm going to be catapulted back into a sense of powerlessness and terror that is in the traumatized part waiting for attention. And as soon as we start to approach that, all of the fear that's in there starts to surface and say if you touch this you may never come out it goes on mm. forever there's not the resource to deal with it so then we get this split between outer and inner that kind of perpetuates a system where we don't heal where healing is and not the focus and the priority and I've met so many people involved in actions and projects for positive change where this split. And the people who are more process oriented are, are often feeling hopeless in the face of action people that will not attend to relationships and the deeper work and the healing that's needed. And projects end up in conflict or burnout, You know, which you, you can see as being the consequence of flight or fight, isn't it? We end up in conflict or exhaustion because we're not tending to vulnerability. We're not willing to do that healing work. And and I can see why. You know, if you've never had the experience of that being met and held, of course it's terrifying.
0: Right, and that sense that if you take the lid off the can of worms, you will never get it back on again. Is I meet that so often with people? The I, I can't do that. Be, exactly as you said, there is no route to healing, and it's not possible. And therefore, we mustn't try. We must just. Exactly as you said, get out there and do stuff with a sense of terrible urgency. So clearly you've created the course, the Healthy Human Culture course, to help individual people to address this. And we don't want to tell people exactly what's on the course because we want people to do the course. And it seems to me, it feels, this is one of those things where if everybody did this course, the world would become a different place simply because of the resourcing that would be there. Absent that, do you have a sense of any other route to healing our culture? Or is it person by person working through their own trauma and coming to a place where they feel resourced, where they have the return routes? on a daily basis is that it?
1: I think there are many many pathways I think we're in an you know and I like to speak about you know an ecology of of systems and interventions I think there are isn't it countless countless ways to heal parts of the system whether that is you know, in in, in a transition, Hilary Prentice used to talk about the kind of earth based wisdom traditions, things that come from indigenous people that have haven't lost or have managed to hold on to some parts of their practices for healing, for repair. You know, some things that come more from the modern sort of Western tradition of psychological understanding, which, you know, has been evolving and developing. I think it's so interesting that we're getting much quicker at healing trauma, individual trauma um, and collective trauma. And then there's the kind of, you know, Hillary used to speak about it as the more Eastern sort of meditative, um, transpersonal ways of creating healing, Chinese medicine, Buddhism, you know, ways of understanding mind and consciousness. Um, so you know that that's one way of describing three kind of huge rivers mm. of insight, tradition, practices, knowledge, pathways um and you know we can expand that to all the people doing conflict resolution work, peacemaking work, um all the different kinds of activism, and none of it will be perfect, isn't it? I like to. You know, healthy human culture isn't going to be perfect. It's going to have its shadow. It's going to have its unhealth, mm. its unconsciousness. None of them will be the immaculate solution. But every part of the ecology is important and valuable. And, and you know, with this, you know, to the extent that people have choice or freedom to be able to access these, which itself, as we know, is very determined by privilege, mm. um, you know, which which pathway suits you what interventions help your organisation or your group or your relationship, you know, depends on you and what works for you and, you know, we have a richness of, of pathways and people exploring and discovering and passing on. Um, and I think it's really interesting because I, I feel like people like Thomas Hubel, Gabal Mate, um, Resma Menakem, are really putting together individual somatic practices with collective healing, mm. you know, with addressing collective trauma and, and seeing, you know, some people are going from the individual uh, to Richard Schwartz, you know, who brought in internal family systems, very much started working with individuals and now starting to apply that much more, starting to be much more in a conversation about collective trauma. Gabul Mate has done the same journey, I would say. Um, you know, others like Thomas Hubel, you know, much more starting from a collective perspective. What is the we? What's the collective dynamics? Um, and I think that's really helpful, interesting meeting. And it feels interesting, isn't it, as the crisis Deepens that these movements of evolution of what healing is and pathways and understandings around healing are also happening. Um, shifts are taking place.
0: Yes, even in our lifetimes, you and I both came to therapy in the eighties, and we're now forty odd years on. And the capacity for understanding and for providing holding and and return paths has evolved so much. I I just started internal family systems therapy. So I'm really interested that you are referencing that because it feels like a whole new layer of a way of working. And maybe it's just that it suits me particularly well where I am at this moment, but it feels so different to the kinds of therapies that were on offer 40 years ago and and richer and deeper and to have potential for healing that i haven't encountered within these kind of modalities before and exactly as as the moment becomes more urgent and and clearly it is and running around saying it's urgent and we have to act i am hearing is not the answer but nevertheless it is more urgent and somehow we need to find the the ways back to exactly what you're saying healthy human culture individually and collectively and then we can move forward and explore what it feels like to live in a healthy human culture. So how do people find you? And what is it that you're offering from your corner of the world to help people find this?
1: My website is healthyhumanculture.com, healthy human culture, all one word. And if you go to the learn section of that, you can find introductory sessions and the learning journey. So we have two learning journeys starting in the autumn, one starting on the 25th of September fortnightly in the afternoon and one starting on the 25th of October which will be a weekly journey and in that there are there are two things. One is we're going to explore the different areas of the map that I've introduced uh, in more detail. We'll bring other, one other map as well that looks at more systems approach. And the other is, how do we apply this to our lives? So, a huge part of what people get from those learning journeys is to be with other people that are interested in looking in this, you know, personal but also systemic way that are often uh, trying to bring more health into whatever system they're part of, whether that is activism, schools, business, something else. So, they're often coming from different disciplines um, and then to have a peer group where we can ask, what's a lie for you? How do we explore, Mm -hmm. you know, what's going on in the dynamics of your relationships or your, um, your groups and organisations. So, so we alternate between sort of conceptual teaching weeks and practice weeks. um, And then we're offering more themed, uh, themed sessions. We've got a, look at how, how does healthy human culture help us to understand systems of power and oppression coming up in October. I'm going to do a session on burnout in September as well. How do we look at burnout through this lens? What does this help us to see? Um, so, and the work is evolving, you know, and I want to just acknowledge, you know, the team of people that I've been working with to help evolve it and bring it through um, the peer group who are all on the website as well been absolutely fantastic in helping me clarify and hone my ideas.
0: Brilliant. And these are all online, clearly. How long do they last for? What are people signing up to? Seven weeks, yeah. Or seven iterations. If it's fortnightly then it's spreads over 14 weeks, presumably.
1: Seven sessions of two and a half hours each one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. And it this genuinely feels transformative that this could be a key if enough people do this and can bring it into their their families, their places of work, their political systems, please, our ways of communicating, it could genuinely be transformative. So thank you. This feels like quite a good place to stop, but is there anything else that we haven't covered that you feel that we should?
1: Uh, I'd be really interested to speak with you about FRAME. So it's another area that you and I have explored a bit together in our previous connections. Um, but it's quite a big area, so maybe that's another conversation to have, yeah,
0: yeah, that feels like a whole other podcast. it's It is quite big, and we've only got a few minutes left if we're not going to make people sit here for another hour. so so let's we let's do this probably in the spring of next year. That would be lovely, definitely. Thank you. In the meantime, thank you for bringing all of this together. It it genuinely feels transformative. It seems to me, I listened to somebody the other day say, the problem is not that we power everything we do with fossil fuels. The problem is that we power everything we do. I think, well, yes, that's slightly the problem, but the problem is we don't know why yet. We haven't sorted out what we're here for. And it feels to me as if really getting to grips with what is a healthy human culture. Once we have got a sense of that, we can then begin the question of what are we here for? And it will emerge out of being healthy. And then everything shifts. So this feels just such an essential part of what we're doing. Thank you so much for bringing it into the world and for coming onto the podcast. And we'll talk again. Thank you so
1: much for hosting me. It's been really lovely.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. And that's it for another week. We will definitely talk to Sophie again about Frames sometime, probably March-ish next year, because I seem to be booked into February. How did that happen? But definitely, we will come back and have another conversation. And in the meantime, enormous thanks to Sophie for bringing the healthy human culture idea and wisdom and the practice of it to the world. If you have the time and the means Whatever else you do with your life, I genuinely think that attending at least one of Sophie's workshops will be transformative. Her capacity to bring joyful curiosity to the nature of the human condition, her generosity of spirit and her ability to see the good in people without idealizing, and her deep knowledge and understanding of how we work and how we can change ourselves. And our relationships with self and other is pretty much unmatched in my experience. So I put links in the show notes to Healthy Human Culture and to the grief-tending workshops, and I strongly encourage you to follow those up. That apart, we will be back next week with another conversation. And in the meantime, thanks to Caro C and to Alan at Airtight Studios for producing. Thanks to Caracy for the music, also at the head and foot. Thanks to Faith Tilleray for the website, for all of the work that goes into making this podcast work, and for the conversations that keep us moving forward. Thanks to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, and, as always, a huge thanks to you for listening. And if you know of anybody else who wants to understand more about how we can heal the way that we are, alone and together, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you, and goodbye.